You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. If there is a God, what might God be like? Religious claims are monumental, but often outlandish, contradictory. I may be put off by religious ritual and ecclesiastical organizations, but I find myself enjoying philosophical theology, applying analytic philosophy to deep questions of Christian theology. I relish the clever arguments, reflecting human obsession to believe and compulsion to worship. But is my attraction more? Must I admit it? The possibility, however remote, that here hides ultimate truth, God, eternal life, all your wishes come true. Christianity has core doctrines, and I've followed their trail from the Trinity to the Incarnation to Jesus to the Atonement. But just one word marks the end of the trail, the quest of the Christian journey, salvation. Salvation seems an odd kind of word. Salvation from what? Salvation for what? Is salvation an evolutionary desire to avoid death or seek transcendence? Or does it name ultimate meaning and purpose? What is salvation? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my philosophical inquiry. Christianity's grand claim is that the creator of the universe has a grand goal for us. It's called salvation. But this salvation, why should I want it? What's its content? How would I get it? What's its process? I myself do not feel drawn to the Christian religion. So why do I feel drawn to comprehend Christian theology? It's this strange duality. On the one hand, to discern rationale for belief. On the other hand, to consider possible purpose. My approach to both is similar. Follow the flow of argument. Test for internal consistency. I go to a leading center for analytic and exegetical theology. Scotland, St. Andrews University, the Logos Institute. I begin with a leader in the new field of analytic theology, a fellow at the Logos Institute, Oliver Crisp. Oliver, the Christian religion promises a pretty good reward. So tell me what the salvation process is. What are the steps? At the heart of the Christian faith is this claim that uh, somehow a particular person, Christ, is the means by which human beings can be reconciled to God. The idea is that human beings are somehow estranged from, from God by sinning or falling short of what God requires of us. And theologians have great long discussions, but they all agree that the solution to sin is, is salvation in Christ. The question then is, what is salvation in Christ and how is that brought about? And what it is that Christ does that reconciles us to God's self. 
part of that reconciliation, in addition to the atoning work of Christ, is then the way in which the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, reaches out, as it were, to the individual and warms the heart of the individual, if you like, in order that they may be united with Christ and, and appropriate to participate in uh, the salvation that he's brought about. So there's a way in which you might say uh, the work of salvation according to Christianity is entirely Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved, although this work particularly centers on what Christ has brought about in his life, death, and resurrection. So let's look at each of the pieces. So the first piece, uh, I need to be reconciled. From, from birth, as it were, we're estranged from God, and then that estrangement only increases when we uh, get to an age where we start doing things as rational agents and as moral agents that uh, estrange us even further, you know, uh, okay. immoral things. So, so we'll, start, we'll start with that estrangement, and that estrangement has to be reconciled. Now, how does Christ do that? And now that is really the nodal issue and different stories that are told in order to explicate how it is that Christ's uh, action does that. And, that. and that's the atonement? That has to do with the atoning work of Christ. Okay, then what? Well then, uh, once you've told a story about the atonement, yes. uh, it's all very well that Christ has done something for us, outside of us. How does that impact upon us? And there is the work of the third person, the, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the idea is that the Holy Spirit reaches out to the individual and somehow renews the individual morally and spiritually, and in the process brings that person into relationship with Christ, unites that person to Christ on their behalf and be reconciled. Is that a single event or is it a continuous event? Well, I mean, there's a sense in which it starts at some point in time, um, but it is uh, something that goes on in as much as uh, Christian theologians want to say the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, lives within the heart of the believer, to use familiar language, and helps renew the believer, you know, on an ongoing basis. But it's something that's a transformation, a moral transformation that can sometimes take a, a great deal of time, the rest of your life, as it were, before this, uh, bef this side of the grave. It's possible, I assume, for me to, uh, uh, to fall away from this. Certainly some people think it's possible. Um, some Christian theologians will say yes. We have reason to think that some people fall away from the faith and are estranged from God finally, even though they were for a period reconciled or seem to be reconciled. Other theologians will say no, once you are reconciled with God, that it's not possible for you to be estranged, even if it may seem for periods of time that God seemed far away or you weren't in contact with God. Nevertheless, you're secure in what, what has happened I, in I'd Christ. I like that one better. Yeah, I like that one too. <laughs> so, and, and then you go through life and, and let's say you're in this condition and then, then you die. Mm. Uh, then what? Well. I mean, for those who are Protestants, usually the salvation process, in a sense, ends at that point, and then you enjoy the presence of God in heaven, and then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth when this world is renewed. Um, but for some uh, Christians, there's a sense in which that process is ongoing. Uh, we are growing ever closer to God, not just in this life, but in the life to come. I quite like the idea that salvation is on, it's ongoing to the grave, that there's, there's a sense in which our relationship with God will only get deeper, richer, fuller uh, as we go further into God, so to speak, in the eschaton, in the world to come, and that goes on forevermore. 
Yeah, and that implies a, a lot of deep philosophical uh, concepts about the nature of time or, or sequence of events uh, in the non-physical world. Right, absolutely. Uh, as, as opposed to sort of a static uh, beatific vision or something. Absolutely. I think most Christian theologians are agreed that ultimately um, our, we are to live an embodied life in the world to come, not, uh, not pie in the sky when you die, so to speak. On its surface, the Christian salvation story seems simple. We humans are bad, sinful from birth, and get worse. Christ reconciles us to God. Our reward is eternal life with God. Terrific if true, what's not to like? But it is not for me to assess the truth value of salvation. There are levels and layers of assumptions to untangle. God, Bible, Jesus, sin, atonement, I could go on. The whole story acceptable, as I see it, only through faith. But it is for me to examine the salvation process. I start with the obvious, why save from sin? I ask a former president of the Society of Christian Philosophers, author of the book Atonement, Eleanor Stump. Think about salvation. You first have to think about what it's salvation from. If what it's from is something bad that God is going to do to you unless you do something for him, then it isn't really a very nice idea. But that's not the Christian idea at all. The Christian idea is that there's something wrong with you. It's not God's fault. And in a certain sense, it's not even exactly your fault. Not totally, not completely but there is something wrong with you. You've got deep inside you a brokenness. You've got a desire to love and a resistance to love at the same time. Deep within each of us, there is a kind of terrible virus, you might say, of the soul that lurks and in the right circumstances will blow up that's what we need help with. That's what we need rescue from. And the problem is the rescue is so difficult. If I say to you, just say no to all this bad stuff. Well, you know, that's absurd. That's totally absurd. If, if you could cure what is the matter with you by willing to cure it, you wouldn't have the disease in the first place. And even God can't fix it for you. And why? Because if God were magically to reach inside your will, give it a quarter turn so that it did better, then we wouldn't have your will anymore. We'd have his will, which operated in him and in you. And now we don't have what we want either. We want you to wholeheartedly will the good and be open to it. And it's hard to know what to do if you can't fix it and God can't fix it. And that's where salvation comes in. Salvation is the process by which this very difficult and fragile thing, the fixing of you, which doesn't take away your will, but perfects it, that gets done. That's what salvation is. If I go with you along that route, what are the steps? It's not open to you to fix yourself by willing it. But what you can do is you can cease resisting. You can surrender. You can just melt and lay yourself open to help. Ceasing resisting isn't a special act of will. 
isn't a kind of act of will. It's not any act at all. It's the cease acting. If you will surrender and cease resisting love, then God can put into you the grace that enables you to accept love. Am I hopeless? Because I don't see that I'm hopeless. Are you hopeless? Well, notice that what I said is that somewhere in there, you've got to cease resisting love. I didn't say you have to be conscious of ceasing to resist love right at this moment and then some dramatic thing happens. Now, I see no evidence whatsoever that you're not in that process. See what I mean? The fact that you've got things about yourself that you don't like is just a sign of the fact that you're smart. Because every human being, if he's paying attention, will find that there are things about himself he doesn't like. So if you're willing to be healed of them at all, you're in the process. See what I mean? Now, of course, just as you don't have to know that you're in the process to be in the process. In the same way, you can believe that you're in the process when you're not. You can be <laughs> self-deceived that way too, you know. So the process is not transparent. Mm. That's what I want to say. But no. Eleanor describes our sinful state. I'm taken by her inimitable style. Imagine myself almost ready to journey with her. But no, I can't take this train. Even granting it's a fair diagnosis of the human condition, why would this particular parochial stream of religious doctrines follow? Moreover, how in this grand scheme did I come to be so bad? Is it really all my fault? Shouldn't God take some of the heat? After all, isn't God supposed to be the creator of everything? Okay, to follow the flow of the argument, I need to accept my sinful state. Provisionally, of course, see where it leads. I'm trying to dissect the inner logic of the salvation process. What happens now? What's the nexus with God? I asked the founder and director of the Logos Institute, professor of systematic theology at St. Andrews, Alan Torrance. Alan, if I came to you late at night and said, you know, I'm really taken by uh, the, the, the Christian claim, and uh, I certainly would like the reward at the end, what's the process? What, what are all the steps that I have to understand? God's primary relationship to the world is legal, right? And we have access to those um, moral laws um, by virtue of our consciences. Uh, kind of innate with knowing with God of God's um, purposes for humanity. Consciences are universal. Okay, we recognize that we've failed, that we've not um, upheld God's law in our lives. And therefore, the gospel presents us with the option of undoing that situation because there was a kind of a contract between um, God and, and the Son. If you go and pay the penalty for these transgressions on the cross, right? Um, and if Robert Kuhn believes and puts his trust in Christ, then the conditions are met for salvation. Okay, my, my first thought is uh, uh, if God created me, because that's part of this whole logical scheme, with the kind of nature I have, um, why then is God blaming me and condemning me to death for, for just doing what I'm, my body has been created to do? We sin freely, okay? And not everybody agrees um, firms that, but traditionally that's okay. been the view. Right. You have a conscience. Y you know that lying is wrong or murder or adultery are, are, are wrong and so on. And, and when you do these things, 
um, the supposition is that you are free not to do them, and you're guilty precisely because you did them freely. And, and right? why is the penalty death? Death because if God has given you life, for you to use that life to frustrate God's will, right? Um, Even one time? And yes, it's massive to, um, to rebel against the, the God who, um, from whom you've um, received life and who's given you life. Well, it's different between rebelling and uh, just falling victim to your own proclivities. Every sin is an act of rebellion. On this model, by repenting of your sins okay. and putting your faith in, in Christ, okay. right? Christ's work on the cross applies, uh, applies to you. Now, there are different, there are different yeah, ways so, of interpreting So maybe that. the death is uh, my substitution death or something like that. That's exactly right. Yeah, okay, yeah. this goes um, hand in glove with the idea that um, Jesus takes the punishment to himself. Okay. That um, a just God requires of those who rebel in this way, who sin in this way. If I do all that, I can imagine myself, you know, kind of sinning again after that. Yeah, indeed. To be a Christian is to, be, to live a life of daily repentance, metanoia, okay? okay? Because we continue to sin, you know, after okay. we've come to faith. Now, I want to reject that model that I've described. Okay. Um, I think it's um, wrong-headed in almost every respect. At the heart of the Hebrew Bible is Torah. What does it look like? It's categorically not contractual. And um, it's, it's a, an affirmation of God's unconditioned and unconditional commitment to God's people, yeah. right? I am the Lord thy God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, as I have loved you, um, have no other gods before me, um, in other words, be faithful to me, love me, and your neighbor as yourself. Um, so there's just a clear structure to it. Um, and it's a very simple one, it's covenantal. Um, it's, there's no contract here. Um, a contract is conditional, okay? A covenant, so the reason we use it in the marriage service, is unconditional. Mm. Uh, um, a person covenants to um, love their spouse for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health, and so on, aye, unconditionally. And that's the, that's the heart of the covenant as we understand it in the Hebrew Bible. Now, for the, in the New Testament, we have um, the kine diatheke, the new covenant, okay? And basically, I think what just differentiates that from... The, um, from the Jewish scriptures, is simply an, an, an extra um, uh, piece of history. Namely, that God fulfills on our side the obligations, okay? And so, as Paul puts it in Romans, um, the righteous requirements of the Torah are fulfilled in Christ. Such is God's covenant commitment to humanity that God fulfills the obligations placed upon us on our side in our place and on our behalf, okay? And that is the heart of salvation. And then by the Spirit, human beings are given to share, to participate in that divine life. Alan asserts that salvation is God's covenant with us, not God's contract. A contract is conditional, a covenant is not. I like that. Benefits a grander God, coheres Hebrew Bible and New Testament. But if Christian salvation were indeed unconditional, wouldn't that cause a cascade of coherence problems with other Christian doctrines like judgment and hell? If you find internal inconsistency, then you haven't found truth. Not to be blasphemous here, but if God created all of this, shouldn't God take some responsibility? 
I'm following the steps, but where are they leading? I see the means, but what are the ends? I asked the professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Andrews, the former Bishop of Durham, N.T. Tom Wright. Tom, I have a visceral aversion to the word salvation, but if I think about it objectively, and that's something I should want, everybody should, should want that. It's funny you saying you have the visceral reaction to the word salvation, because I don't have quite that, but I have a, an awareness that for many people in the Western world and the Western church, salvation is simply all about going to heaven when you die, mm. and that that really isn't what the New Testament is about. And so in my own translation of the New Testament, um, I try to avoid the word salvation, and I tend to use the word rescue instead, oh, which is okay. quite sharp for many people because it implies, oh, there's something wrong, yeah. something bad's going to happen, how can I get rescued? Which is, of course, how a first-century person might have heard the language of salvation. But for most people in today's world, if you hear somebody talking about salvation, it has a kind of a 19th-century fundamentalist ring, whatever it might be. And so we react again it. So I want to say, no, put that on hold and go back to the New Testament and talk about the ultimate purpose which God has, according to the New Testament, for which the mission of Jesus and the work of the Spirit is, is apparently the, the mechanism by which it happens. And it is the rescue of creation, not rescue from creation, mm. but the rescue of creation, that creation itself has been corrupted, humans have been corrupted with it, and that God intends to make a new world, new heavens and new earth in the, in the language, um, and that God will do justice and mercy at the last. And so what we're being rescued from is chaos, a chaos in which there is no justice and also no mercy. So here's how it works. In the New Testament, God promises, as he did in the Old Testament, that he will put things right one day. The world will be put right. Then, in Jesus, he puts something right by raising Jesus from the dead. And the whole process of salvation happens between those two poles. And in between, God puts us right so that we can be part of his putting right project. Now, what's gone wrong? If I say repentance and sin, a lot of people have a visceral reaction to that sure. as well. But in fact, and Paul says, you have to turn away from that, stop doing that stuff. And that's repentance and all the practices that go with it. And then you have to align yourself with the thing God has already done, which is what he's done in Jesus. And that's called faith and baptism. And together with that, the Holy Spirit is at work in this whole process. Then you become part of, supposedly, part of the answer rather than part of the problem. And you become part of God's putting right project for the world. And so what, what happens at the end of that if I go through that successfully? According to, again, according to the New Testament, God is going to do for the whole creation what he did for Jesus on Easter Day. That is, God is going to remake the whole creation and remake us within that. And that's the resurrection. That's what that's all about. And how do we participate in that? You do that already in faith and baptism. Paul says when you are baptized, you die with the Messiah and you rise again with the Messiah in a kind of proleptic way. Yeah. Just as part of God's future has come into the present in Jesus, so by the Spirit, part of that same future comes into the present um, when the gospel is preached, when, when we um, accept, believe, whatever. And then when we are ourselves shaped messianically, as Paul would say, by being en Christo in the Messiah. Um, and that shaping then results in uh, 
the vocation which we have, each of us as human beings have vocations to be part of God's project in the world. As we use those gifts and skills and develop that, we are being shaped for the ultimate life which God has for us in the new creation. And that is? The, the resurrection life. Humans are designed to be the royal priesthood. The royal bit is um, to, to sharing God's rule over the world. As the Christian master plan tells it, salvation is the ultimate end toward which all means move, providing sense in creation and purpose in life. Here's how salvation supposedly works. We are born sinful, then sin freely and repeatedly. Sin alienates us from God, requires eternal death. But Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection enables redemption, and if we accept Christ, we are reconciled to God and receive eternal life. There are three obvious assumptions, each requiring a long leap of faith. God exists, the Bible is God's word, Jesus was the Christ, God incarnate. From there, the arguments can flow to salvation with a certain fluidity if only displaying how human ingenuity can justify fantastic beliefs. But to consider salvation as ultimate truth, salvation's internal consistency must be tested. Is sin entirely my fault, or does God have onus? Is salvation God's contract or God's covenant? Once saved, can we become unsaved? Could the process of salvation continue in the afterlife? What's the resurrection like? Do we have activities and vocations? Is a salvation system of sin, death, and reconciliation God's only way? Salvation, human ingenuity or ultimate truth? The former is sure to be the latter is challenged to be closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.